0: Uh, We're talking uh, this morning about, uh, yeah, the friendship of David and Jonathan, and if there's ever a mistake that you can make, it's to ask the discipleship pastor to talk about relationships, community, and friendship on a Sunday morning, and expect him not to give you a treatise on those things. And so, uh, if at any point this doesn't make sense, seems like I'm rambling going on, just look at the suit, and uh, it looks really good. So, uh, moms, uh, happy Mother's Day. But We are looking at uh, David and Jonathan. We've gone back to to see where where they first meet. And we're going to be looking at, though, uh, this little section in uh, chapter 18. and, And then as we saw last week... Uh, the author of uh, First Samuel takes a little bit of a detour, takes a break uh, from talking about David and Jonathan because he uh, goes on to talk about Saul and, and the issues of jealousy in Saul's life. But uh, as you get back into uh, chapters nineteen and twenty, you, uh, you really see uh, the relationship uh, of David and Jonathan uh, be highlighted, uh, come full circle, come take its complete form. And so we're we're going to be looking at that and, and looking about what, what does what does that mean for us? What, what, what does that mean for us today? Because truthfully. As we read uh, the story of David and Jonathan, um, I don't know about you guys, but there's just parts of it that I'm like, ugh, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, There's a level and a depth to the intimacy that they they know with one another another where there are are signs uh, of affection that are expressed between them where uh, just even as a guy, but just as myself, I'm like, "I, I, I don't know how comfortable I am with that. I mean, it's great that David and Jonathan had that kind of a relationship with one another, that they could share those things with one another, but, you know, you know hugging one another and weeping on one another and everything, I, I, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave that out. That, that doesn't really seem, you know, for me, because I have a hard time looking at my dad when I tell him I love him, that one time a year on Father's Day that I tell him I love him. And so it, it, it seems just a little, like, too close and comfortable, and uh, maybe, it, maybe it's because it was a different time. Uh, men had different ways of showing affection between one another. Uh, just in, in general, it's a cultural thing. And so, I mean, it's great that David and Jonathan had that for them, but I don't know if I really feel like I need that. Uh, in, in fact, I, I think for most of us, we might look at the relationship of David and Jonathan and say, that's an amazing thing that they had that level of friendship with one another. But I have that in other ways. In fact, I'm not really totally sure I need it to that degree in my life. Uh, it, it seems like, hey, nice thing if it happens. Not totally necessary, perhaps. I, I, the, way we, the reason we feel this way is because of our culture. It is because it's been such a long time since David and Jonathan were friends and what we find now. It's because the way we see our world and we think about our world and we think about ourselves in our world has totally changed. You see, in 1640... Uh, in the Netherlands, there was this French, French matheti- mathematician. And he had been working on a bunch of stuff and uh, had actually uh, come up with some uh, pretty unique uh, discoveries in, in the field of mathematics. But, but he was worried that if all of knowledge could be doubted, kind of undone, then the advancements that he had made in mathematics would be undone. So he started asking himself the question of, well, what can I really be sure about? Because if I can be sure about something, I can, I can build up my knowledge based on that. And then what I've done in mathematics won't be undone. And th- th- this line of thinking uh, led Rene Descartes to finally come up with the idea and say, I think, therefore I am. See, he had, he had this notion, he, he, he was riddled with doubt and anxiety, and he said, you know, I'm not totally sure I can trust my senses. I mean, matter of fact, not even my senses, I, I, I don't even know if I can trust the fact that I see the world the way it actually is. I mean, we have dreams all the time, right? That like we, ha- we wake up from the dream, and we're like, wow, that felt real. So how do you know what's real? Well, Descartes said, well, I, I know for a fact that because I'm thinking and I am even doubting that that's going on, therefore I exist. I'm real is an amazing idea, and it's hard to overstate how much this idea has changed our world and the way we see our world and the way we relate to one another. Because for the first time in history, not just because of sin, but just even the way we think about ourselves and our world, I has become the center of the universe. Everything is dependent on me. I think, therefore, I am. It's an incredible thing. It's actually led to a lot of good stuff. It's actually led to the rise of things like human rights, not because of what you believe or what group you're a part of, or even because you believe that people were created in the image of God, because people have intrinsic value because they exist. It's this incredible thing that, that, that's taken hold of our world and, and nothing has really ever been the same since. And it's led to the ability to, to question things, to, to question things that people say have been in place, that were put in place by God, that were actually used to oppress people. Because no longer do you have to take someone's word that that's reality for it. You can actually say, well, what do I see? What do I see as real? What, 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 what is going on? Because the thing that matters most is people, the individual all of a sudden. It's, it's this incredible thing that, that is given such value to you and me as just individuals in our world, not because of what we believe in the Bible, but just because this is the way we see the world. We know that we are created in the image of God. We know that's why people matter, but all of a sudden this idea kind of gives weight to that beyond even Christianity. But like all good things, as good as this statement is, as, as insightful as it is, given enough time, we tend to screw good things up, don't we? I mean, that's what humans do. And so we have this idea of individualism, and it's, it's this amazing thing, but individualism where we're at today doesn't just mean, I think, therefore I am, it means I am, therefore I'm everything. That I am the center of the universe, right? We might say, well, I don't walk around that way. But the way we see the world, this is how. And what's more is we see our world. This is where we're at. That we hear phrases all the time that that have become part of common language. Where what people are saying is, don't worry about people around you. Don't worry about everyone else. Just take care of you. We're encouraged all the time to just do you. Just do you. Don't worry about anyone or anything else. All that matters is who you are. Just get in touch with yourself. Find the real you. Find what makes me, me. One of the greatest motivating factors in our world today is how to to be your true self. And usually when we talk about these things, what we mean is, my true self is inside of me, and everything else around me, and most importantly, usually people, especially what we would say toxic people, get in the way of me being my true self. Me and Hannah were watching a, uh, a, a TV show recently, and I won't tell you what it is, because it's kind of our guilty pleasure, and it's embarrassing that I watch it, but... Uh, they were doing, it's a reality show, and that's bad enough. And so they, they were doing a, a reunion show at the end where, where people were talking. And there's this one guy that he kept interjecting himself into conversations that had nothing to do with him. And uh, someone eventually called him out on it. It was really annoying. And someone finally called him out on it. And they're like, man, why are you talking? This has nothing to do with you. And he goes, I just need to speak my truth. It doesn't matter that it doesn't involve him. It doesn't matter it doesn't have anything to do with him. It doesn't matter that these people are trying to figure out their relationship with one another. He needed to be heard. He needed to be seen. He needed to be understood. And once he got that out there, that was good enough. That's all that mattered. This is the world we find ourselves in. And so to see a relationship like Jonathan and David's where it says that they were selfless towards one another, committed to one another, It does rub us kind of the wrong way and feel a bit uncomfortable and maybe too much. Because as much as we might say these things are annoying, it is to some degree the way we still see our world. And the dangerous thing is, is, that, is that I don't think any of us coming in today would say individualism is a bad thing. Individualism is actually quite amazing. It, it teaches personal responsibility and, and looking out for yourself and self-betterment and all these sorts of things. But individualism taken too far, as I believe we have in our world today, is actually just as dangerous as things that we know are dangerous, like Racism. In an article uh, talking about um, friendship and relationships in the Old Testament, uh, Chad Bird says that both individualism and racism communicate the same error: that I have zero intrinsic need of another person. I am my own oasis in the desert of humanity. I may use you, but I don't need you. We're not on the same plane. I am my own self-contained person, complete in myself, content in myself, operating in my own privatized humanity, within my skin, inside my head, operating within my heart and soul are all the necessities requisite for a fulfilled life. He goes on to say, any contact with another person, be a coworker, a spouse even, or even a friend, is completely utilitarian. Not in any way what makes me, me. The walls of my ego are not porous. They allow for no movement in or out. 100% of me is found inside me. Such is the error of our thinking, he says. Because to be human is to, in fact, be in relationship. We have gotten to a place in our world, whether we think We see it this way or not. We all have been conditioned to feel as though relationships are at best something to be added on to a full life. But they're not necessary. The story of David and Jonathan says something very different about God's design. And what God thinks of them and how God uses deep personal friendships to grow us, and to help us realize more of who we actually are. And so uh, as we dive into this relationship, I, I, I want to look at a few things, actually three to be exact, but I want to go ahead and give you the main point in the sermon so we can just get it out of the way. It's really a bad way to preach a sermon to give it up, the main point up front, but I know it's Mother's Day and some, some people have an expectation, so I just want to go ahead and, you know, ruin your expectations here. This is not a normal Mother's Day sermon. Because the main point of the sermon, sorry moms, is your mom can't be your only friend. As nice as it might sound, as good as that might be, as comforting as a mother can be and is, the story of David and Jonathan shows us that we have a deep need for not just a relationship in terms of marriage, a relationship between our parents and ourselves, but we also need relationships with friends that are known on a deeper level than I think oftentimes we are comfortable with because of, the, again, the way we see our world and the world we live in. Let's back up to First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 18 there, verse 1. Uh, Ed just read it for us. It says there that as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The, the Hebrew word here is a uh, kasar, and it, the, what it literally means is to be knit, to be, to be strewn together, to, to, to be united in, in such an intricate way that you can't tell where one ends and the other begins. And the reason this is important, the reason that The author of 1 Samuel takes time and, and, and painstaking process to not only tell us this at the very beginning of David and Jonathan's relationship, but then to spell out and show over the next few chapters exactly what that means and exactly what that looks like, is that without this kind of knitting, where our soul is intricately tied to someone else's, where we forget ourselves and we don't know where we end and they begin where we love them and care for them and look out for them in the same way that we would for ourselves is because we can't truly know who we are if we don't do this. You see, the reality of our lives is that we don't really know who we are. And we don't really want to know who we are. We want to keep thinking we are the people we want to be. We have an idea in our head of who we are and what we're like, of what we'll do in certain situations, of what we find important, of what we value the most. And the great thing is, is that as long as we stay in our own minds, we can be that person. We watch movies. We watch heroes in movies. We, we, we watch the protagonists, and we think, I would be that person. I would do that thing. I would run into the burning building. I would go help those people out. I wouldn't be selfish. I wouldn't run away. I wouldn't cower. And the great thing is, as long as we aren't thrust into those situations, we can keep thinking that's who we would be. I used to tell you, I I told you guys, it was like a few years ago, I I, I shared the story um, of uh, the year I caught um, the smoker on fire at Thanksgiving and almost burned our house down. And I used to think, I loved to think that I was somebody that was cool under pressure. And I got to think that way and think that I was like that until I got put into a situation where I was under pressure and I found out I'm not that cool under pressure. My wife is a whole lot more cool under pressure than I am. But you see, we don't know that about ourselves until we're put into that position into that position you cannot know the most important things about who you are until you're put in the position to have to live them out and the only thing that will do that in our life is relationships with other people you ask the question am i selfish am i stubborn am i patient am i generous am i am i prideful am i humble Am I loving? Am I forgiving? All all these things that we want to know about ourselves and about other people. And, And every one of those questions, we all know what the right answer is. We all know the thing that we hope to be and we want to be. And in our minds, we are that way. But the only way you really know which way you fall on the spectrum is when you're in a relationship with another person and it's put to the test. When you're finally in that situation. See, the truth of the matter, the truth that David and Jonathan's relationship, their friendship shows us is is that you are more you when you're anchored to other people. You are more you when you are tied down in relationships with people around you, when you're committed, when you're intentional, when you have made a commitment to them and they know the commitment you have made to them. See, our world, what we think is, we're more ourselves when we're free to go wherever we want to go, right? Right? Don't tie me down. Don't commit me. I, 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 we don't want to be limited in what we do because that will limit what, who we are. That to be committed to other people m- means we have to give up parts of ourself. The reality, though, is that to be committed to other people will never require you to give up the parts of who you tr- truly are. They will only require you to give up your selfish desires. God wants us to be in relationship with himself and one another. And God will never ask us to do something that means we have to give up a part of who we were created to be. But we think to be more of ourselves, to be more human, to have more of a full life, What that means is less commitments and more freedom. When in actuality, if we want to be more of who we created to be, we will be liberal and generous with how committed we are to the people around us. Chad Bird also goes on to say, As important as they are for mutual conversation and encouragement and consolation, on a deeper level, friends keep us rooted in a genuinely human life. That is a life in which we live outside ourselves, gladly caught up in the web of another's life where we can love and serve them in moments of self-forgetfulness. This is what it means to be human because this is what we are created to be in the image of God. To freely give ourselves completely for the sake of other people, not for what we may gain out of it. And it's in this place when we've actually given ourselves away, that we actually begin to find ourselves then We see this with Jonathan. Jonathan enters into this relationship, this friendship with David, and as he does so, he finds out he learns who he truly is. Not who he thinks he is, but who he is. He finds out that he's someone that's faithful. Someone that is, is generous with what he has. That is selfless. That is willing to commit himself to David when David has nothing to offer him in return. David is not in a position of power when Jonathan forms this friendship with him. Jonathan has everything to lose and nothing to gain from David. And yet he is faithful to the friend that God has given him. What's more, Jonathan learns that he is someone that is focused on, most importantly, what God is doing. Unlike his father, Saul. Saul where Saul had a choice to make and Saul chose to try to cling to what he had, Jonathan knew that if God's blessing was upon David, that meant the end of Jonathan's ability to potentially be the king. What's more is in those days when a new king took over, the opposing kings, the former king's family, were seen as potential threats to be able to claim the throne. And so usually the new king would have the former king's entire family killed. So no possible claim to the throne could be made. Jonathan has everything to lose. And yet he sees what God is doing. He sees this intricate connection through shared experiences with David. And so he gives himself to that. We like to think... That getting out on our own, being away from everyone else, and having no other commitments than, other, than just diving deeper into our own psyche and our own feelings is the way we find who we really are. But the reality of the way God has created us is the more committed we are to other people is the place that we dig deeper into who we truly are. And it's where God begins to also show us who he wants us to be as well. As we go on, we 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 see two two other aspects uh, taking shape: the, the the importance of this relationship for David and Jonathan. And, and the first thing that we see here is that David shares with Jonathan uh, about Jonathan's own dad. He he comes to Jonathan and he, and he says, "You know, you're, you, I think your dad wants to kill me, and, and I and I really need your help to figure out if that's the case." This is. An extreme moment of vulnerability for David. Here he is, not only talking about the king, but the guy's dad in a way that could be construed as committing treason and conspiring against the king. It's a moment where David has to trust Jonathan. In the same way that we, we see that Jonathan eventually will trust God's plan with David. Trusting that if that is what God wants, that is what is best. And that, what that means is that Jonathan's future and his security and his safety and the future of his family is not in his own hands. As unnatural as it might feel, the truth is, is that you are more yourself when you're vulnerable. I don't think I have to go into detail why we don't like this, why, why this is not the thing that like, we want to hear. Because what we like to think is we're more ourselves when we're in control. We're more ourselves when we have everything the way that it needs to be. We're more ourselves when we're able to work out of safety and security and prosperity. But the truth of the matter is, is that you were created to need God. You are created to be in relationship with God. And so vulnerability... Being open with those closest to us, sharing the places in our life that we are insufficient and we are not in control, shows us who we truly are, reminds us of our great need to not trust in ourselves and our own power and our own strength, but to trust in God's See, when we push away relationships and we see them as unnecessary in our life, we're able to fool ourselves into thinking we have it all together. We have it all taken care of. But when we allow ourselves to recognize in someone else our need for something else, our need for input, That we can't do everything on our own, and we might just, in fact, really need the help we're so slow to ask for. It shows us who we are and what our ultimate need is, and that is Jesus Christ. It has this way uh, of drawing us closer to him, but it also has this way of pushing us deeper than we would ever go on our own. Look here with me in 1 Samuel chapter 20 verses 12 through 17. It's this really long thing where as as John, as John David's worried uh, about Saul wanting to kill him and they're trying to figure out and they come up whether or not that's the case and Jonathan's not totally sure and they come up with this really intricate plan for how if Jonathan does find out how he'll find out and then how he'll tell David and it's all this stuff where when you get to the end of it they do all this stuff with like shooting arrows and um, a servant and I think the end of it, though, they get up and they hug, and it's like, why couldn't you guys just done that in the first place? It seems like you didn't need to do all the, you know, secrecy and everything like that. In the middle of that, Jonathan makes this commitment with David. He says there in verse 12, it says, Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father, when I figured out what he wants to do about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, if he doesn't want to kill you, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm if he wants to kill you, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. Basically, if he wants to kill you and I don't tell you, let me die as well. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan makes this huge commitment with David. He doesn't just say, hey man, like I, I don't want anything to happen to you. He says, I'm actually going to put myself into your place. I, I'm actually going to put my life on the line. And he goes on, and, and he asks David in the same way to make a commitment to him. And he says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. The word here for steadfast love is hesed, and it is the word that is commonly used for God's love towards us. Jonathan is asking David to love him in the same way that God loves him, unconditionally. He says, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies, which would include Jonathan's family. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. David, Jonathan asked David to go deeper and further than David probably would have been comfortable with. And in the same way, Jonathan says, I'll do that as well. See, we're also, you're more yourself when you're pushed out of your comfort zone. When you are asked to go beyond the things that make you comfortable... Things that you can't see in yourself, but someone else can. See, I think Jonathan recognized something about David. That maybe David didn't even know in himself where he was willing to ask him and to push him to go further and deeper in his commitment than David might have otherwise been willing to do. Uh, A couple months ago, there was this article in the New Yorker. I didn't read it because who has time to read a New Yorker article? Uh, They're forever long. But the story of it. And the title were amazing. It says, uh, the the article is called, The Pastry AI That Learned to Fight Cancer. And uh, the the subtitle says, In Japan, a system designed to distinguish croissants from bear claws has turned out to be capable to do a whole lot more. The story behind this thing is that in uh, 2007, there was this bakery in Japan, and uh, they do over 200 different kinds of pastries. And so it, it, it takes an awful lot of work to memorize all those different pastries and, and how much they cost and everything like that. And so it was actually like a, a lot of work for them to train new employees at the cash register for how to do this. And so they were trying to figure out a way to do their checkouts faster and more efficiently while not losing customer service in the meantime. And uh, so one of the ideas was is that they could prepackage everything. The only problem with that is we all know in a bakery that when you walk in, there's a difference between the prepackaged stuff and the fresh stuff, Right? And so you're not going to pay as much for prepackaged stuff. It means it was not made that day, and it's kind of just cookie cutter. meh. And so who wants that? And so they couldn't do that. Um, But again, to train new people how to distinguish all 200 of these pastries was just so much work and time. And usually by the time they invested that, the people would move on to new jobs. And so what do you do? So they reached out to a computer programmer to create an Artificial intelligence system that you could, where you could set the pastries under a camera and it could identify the difference between all the different pastries and then ring them up. Uh, it took five years, but they finally did it, and so it increased efficiency and pr- and everything. And um, so it, it was, it was then in, in 2017, five years after that, that um, this bakery was uh, advertising and they advertised their system and hey, you know how amazing this thing was and you can get in and get out and you're not going to lose the customer service experience or any of that sort of stuff. Well, a doctor saw that commercial and uh, realized something, had the thought that, you know what? Um, human cells under a microscope look an awful lot like bear claws. They look like pastries. And so maybe if you could like reconfigure just a few little things, Maybe you could put human tissue under this system and it might be able to differentiate between like, healthy cells and cancerous cells. Sure enough, without much work, this artificial intelligence system can do that now. Or something that was created and it was good enough. I mean, it is great that, I mean, a feat of technology to be able to set 200 different pastries under a camera and be able to distinguish them and ring it up, right? And yet now it's saving lives. They're actually using this thing for all sorts of different things now. They've realized that it can, it can distinguish amulets and charms at trade shows and ring them up and everything like that. It's even able to look at the wiring and jet engines and distinguish what might be faulty wiring so it can get fixed before it breaks now. I think those people in the bakery and the guy who created the program were perfectly happy with the fact that it was able to tell a bear claw apart from a croissant. But with the help of somebody from the outside that knew just enough about how the thing worked, it was able to see that there was so much more potential there. You and I need people in our life That know us well enough and deep enough that will push us beyond what we are comfortable with to realize the full potential of what christ has for us in our life Uh, brian edgar is a uh, professor i had in seminary in his book uh, called uh, goddess friendship He says there is a need for prophetic figures who are able to stand out as being radically different and who oppose the worst forms of evil. But there is perhaps an even greater need for friends who are prepared to make friendship a spiritual relationship that challenges people to overcome their satisfaction with a mediocre Christian life. Discomfort is where growth happens. Being out of our comfort zone. And when we live our lives isolated from people only close enough that they can see the surface without knowing the depths we will only stay there and we will find that we lack the growth that we so desperately desire and we'll probably actually end up getting to a place in our life where we say you know what maybe I'm just not going to ever find that maybe it's is a story that was for that time and not now. But if anything, the the story of David and Jonathan and the friendship that we see there, we should walk away and we should say, that is God's design. That is what he wants for us, and that is for all time. That is not just for them, for then, but it's for us, and it's for now as well. Real quick, uh, 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 those two things, this idea of vulnerability and and being pushed, Probably one of those sounds really good to you, and one sounds not so great. Because I think we typically, along these lines, fall into two camps. Some of us really love the idea of being vulnerable with other people. We, we, we love sitting down with people and being to open up and share what's going on in our life. The only problem is, is usually if that's the thing that appeals to us, we're not so crazy about the idea of being accountable and being pushed. We want to be able to sit down, share what's going on, how tough our life is, all those sorts of things what I've fallen into, all that stuff, but hey, don't ask me to do anything about it, right? And so the only problem with that is is that transparency without accountability usually just ends up leading to unprincipled living. The Bible calls it licentiousness. This idea that just by simply sharing what's going on in our life makes it better somehow, and so then we can go on and we can kind of keep doing the same stuff. It, it's at least better that I share it and I don't keep it hidden, is usually the thought. For others of us, we love the idea of accountability. We want people, when you say you're going to be somewhere, be somewhere. When you say you're going to do something, do something. And it drives us nuts when people don't do that, right? But for those of us that love accountability, we're usually not crazy about transparency. I don't want to get into the muck of your life. Don't drag me down into that stuff. Just do what you say you're going to do. The only problem with that is that accountability accountability without transparency is usually just slavery to principles it's legalism what we need in our life is both of these things we need to be vulnerable but we need to be pushed in sharing and opening up about what's going on in our life we need people that will care enough about us to say i think this is what god wants for your life And i know that's hard to hear and i know you don't want that but no it's said out of love and i don't say it lightly This is why when David, well, David had this with Jonathan, and it's why when David finds out that Jonathan has died in 2 Samuel chapter 1, he laments and he says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. The word that David uses here for, to describe Jonathan and his presence in his life is pleasant. That same word is used by the psalmist in Psalm 135 as God's name. It's the same word in Psalm 27 where the psalmist says, I need to be in the presence of your pleasant goodness in the temple. What David is saying is that Jonathan has been God's presence in his life. That he has seen God in a new way and learned things about God and been opened up to God's love and the depth of his love and his caring for himself in a way he wouldn't have been otherwise because of the relationship he's had with Jonathan. You see, we might feel weirded out by the idea of having friends this deep and on this level because of the way we see our world and the way our world is set up and what we see as normal and what we see as extraordinary. But if David and Jonathan have anything to show us, it's that through deep friendships, we come to encounter God's love in a way we wouldn't otherwise. And it's when we fully encounter the love of God That's when we can say, well, we're truly human. To know who God is and to know who we've been created to be and to be pushed beyond what we're comfortable with, but what we know that God wants for us. To go to those depths, to to be encouraged, to give ourselves for the sake of other people. That is what leads us to being who we truly are meant to be, not who we like to think we are. It's for this reason that Craig Rochelle, he's a pastor, and he just says you can never be who God called you to be outside the strength of a biblical community. There is an aspect of God's love for you that you are never going to realize apart from deep friendships with other believers. Now let me say something really controversial. You won't like the sound of it, but stick with me. What we're talking about here with David and Jonathan cannot happen in the church. Let me explain why that is. For my birthday one year, Hannah got, me, uh, got us tickets uh, to go to a Cincinnati Bengals-Pittsburgh uh, Steelers game. And uh, there's not a whole lot better than uh, going to Cincinnati decked out in Steelers gear and rubbing it in all their faces that they support a terrible football team. And so... Um, and. Um, What's more is my wife is a Bengals fan, so it's really good to rub it into her face. So so we, go, so we go to this game, and it's this really weird experience. Only NFL game I've ever been to, and I don't think I'll be back because of this weird experience that I had. Because we get there, and uh, uh, first of all, uh, it's full of Bengals fans, so that's just a bad start to begin with. But then uh, the section that we're sitting in ends up being the only section in the entire stadium that stood for the entire game. And not to sound too old, but I'm sitting there thinking... We paid $130 a piece for these seats. I want to use the seat, you know. And so, yeah, um, that that all was going on. But uh, we sit down in our seats, and I'm not even in my seat for 30 seconds. And the lady next to me turns and goes, you're not Mike. I was like, no, I'm not. And I thought that's where the conversation would begin, and she never said another word to me the rest of the time. And I think it probably had a little bit to do with the fact that I was wearing a Steeler's shirt. But she turns to the people behind me and she goes, where's Mike? And I'm like, who's Mike? What's going on? We got these tickets off of StubHub. I found out just by listening to them all that apparently it was an entire group of people. They all had season tickets and so they were all there week in and week out. And they were all friends because of it. And Mike wasn't there that weekend. And so it, it was this weird thing where I, at first I was like, well, you know, this is, this is, is going to be, you know, it was like, it was a Sunday. And so it was like, you know, we're not going to church today, you know, and, and stuff. But I showed up and it was like, this kind of feels like church because they were all like sitting there and they were watching this game and they were talking to one another and they were asking how things were going on, you know, in their family and they knew like kids' names and stuff. And the person said, you know, well, where's Mike? And somebody goes, well, I, I'm not really sure. I think you had a family thing. And I realized this is church. This is exactly church, both good and bad. It was amazing because they're in that sense, they had community. But if you really listen to them and you think about it, how much community did they really have? Sure, they were in that place. They had something in common. They were all Bengals fans. That meant something to them. It united them. They, because of that, they learned each other's names. They knew each, where each other was at. They kind of even knew each other's families and what was going on in their life. But how much do you think they actually knew about each other beyond those Sunday games? How much interaction do you think they had after the final whistle blew? Yeah, they knew that Mike wasn't there. He had some family thing. But what family thing? That's not the depth. A relationship that we see here with David and Jonathan, and it's not the depth of relationship we find in the church. It's a relationship that begins in the church, but it cannot be cultivated here in this place. Just simply rubbing shoulders with people, being in the same place, being about the same thing, does not mean you have the depth of relationship and friendship with one another that God wants you to have. It's a good place to start. It's a solid foundation. It is a shared experience where you can be intentional about identifying and saying, I want that kind of relationship with that person. But don't mistake the fact that we are gathered here together for what David and Jonathan had. There's a lot of things we could say about how we get this in our life and, and how we do it, but I, I, just four practical, like really practical, really fast, don't even need to really explain them, you know, ways that you can begin to cultivate this intentionally in your life. To have deep spiritual friendships that take you to a level, that take you beyond what you would imagine, that get you out of your comfort zone, that commit you to someone, that anchor you in a way to where you actually become more of who God has made you to be. The first is just to connect with people face-to-face. Stop rubbing shoulders with people and be face to face with people. This is a reason, as a church, surprise, surprise, a discipleship pastor that wants to talk to you about growth groups and follow. That we have growth groups so so that we we sit face to face with one another and we talk about scripture and we encourage one another and we encourage people to go deeper in their relationship. But it's also why we have something that's like follow where you sit one-on-one with somebody and you have meaningful spiritual conversations that you can't even have in the size of a small group like a growth group. To be face to face with people. To begin to grow deeper with them. To be vulnerable. And to push them and to push yourself. The, the other three, I'm just going to say them because I, I, I think that makes sense. If, if you want to connect deeper with people, pray with them, serve with them, and play with them. Do things outside of Sunday mornings, that one hour, with them. Be intentional about it. Live life together. And do it facing one another, not just simply facing me with each other. I I, I think the the question is, uh, it's a call to just self-examination this morning uh, of who are the people that you are committed to. Do you know that? Do they know that? David and Jonathan knew the commitment they had with one another. They had been intentional about forming that bond. Who are the ones that are encouraging and challenging you to grow Are you being vulnerable with them? Are you allowing them and giving them permission to push you further than you want to go? The Hebrew word for group of friends literally means a group tied together, glued together, I'm sorry, glued together. That is the picture of what David and Jonathan are, glued together, inseparable growing deeper in their life with Christ, with one another. Who are you glued with in your journey of faith that is helping you to become more of who you are and to know Jesus deeper than even a relationship with a spouse or a parent or a pastor can help you realize. It is a gift the Holy Spirit wants to give each of us. Not for then, but for you and I now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for... ...your grace... ...and how you give us what we need. Lord, I, I, I have to admit that... ...for my own self... I, it, is, ...it is difficult to admit insufficiencies. It is so much easier to act like and pretend like and and, and to think as though everything is put together. Everything is the way it needs to be and that um, relationships are good, but they're not essential. But Father, your word shows us the need for us to come to grips with our insufficiencies. But, Lord, we need you for salvation. And, Father, we need each other to be more of ourselves, to grow in faith, to grow in love, to realize who we are and where we are, but to also be encouraged. And to realize some things about our own selves that we would never be able to see. Would we be open to the leading of your Holy Spirit to, to admit that, to, to know that it is essential for our life? And Lord, would you help us by your power, because this does not come naturally to us, to be intentional about opening ourselves up and giving one another permission to speak truth and love into each other's lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.